delight to be in church. What an honor to speak in the pulpit of Stephen Davey. I love to call him my pastor, for you see, for 40 years, I didn't have anyone to call pastor. And I love that term, and I address him that way with great affection. And he is one of the outstanding preachers of our day. I sometimes wonder if we really realize what a jewel, what a wonderful man of God that he has placed before us. And I encourage you very much to pray for him every day, God's blessing upon him, his family, and the ministry that God has given him here. And those of us who co-labor in any aspect of this ministry, we realize what a genuine Christian, what a wonderful and loving servant God has given us to lead us, and we're so thankful. I want to say, I know you're disappointed that he's not here, and I'm disappointed when he's not here. (laughs) I told him on Friday night that I'm always disappointed when he's not speaking, but my wife, if you want to feel sorry for someone, make it her. She's had to hear me for 40 years, so (laughs) it's a long time. Perhaps in your memory bank, you look back on those years, and maybe your days in high school, And there was this special person, girl or boy, that you grew fond of, and you just thought, well, that's the one for me. But then something happened, and you met the real love of your life, and all of the affection that you had for the former one is gone, and you find that one that will be your life mate And all of your buddies and your activities and the things on which you spent money, they just fade away like that. And every time you see that special person, it almost takes your breath away. You're flowing. You can't study. My mother said to me after I dated my wife, Lalani, for maybe two or three weeks, she says, you're in love. I can tell it. Well, that love led to marriage, and 50 years later, it's still wonderful. But it's the expulsive power of that new affection that took the other girl completely out of my mind. Believe me, it expelled the old affection. And we have in God's Word the life of the Apostle Paul who had a new affection. He discovered the power, the expulsive power of a new affection. And I invite our attention to Philippians chapter 3. In this wonderful portion of God's Word, Many times Philippians had been called the joy epistle, and Paul opens the third chapter uh, encouraging the people to rejoice. But what he has in this epistle, he is warning the church at Philippi about the false teachers, the Judaizers, who would once again bring works back into the mix as a necessity to being accepted with God as a necessity to salvation. They wanted to have the Gentiles circumcised. And so Paul, with some very uncomplimentary terms, calls them dogs. Now, I know you may have dogs, but the way that he used the term, these were scavenger dogs. They were mean and vicious dogs. They napped at your heels. And he likens them unto dogs and evil workers and the mutilators because of their emphasis of circumcision, thinking that anything they did outwardly would make them righteous. And so Paul is very concerned that no one uh, delude the Philippian church with the gospel of works, for the gospel of works is not a gospel at all. In fact, this is a prison house. And any religion 
that makes you believe that your works are going to make you accepted with God or going to get you into heaven. It is nothing but a set of chains and a prison. And so Paul, in writing to the Philippians, sets forth his own background so that his adversaries, the Judaizers, couldn't possibly uh, say that he didn't know what he was talking about. So he sets forth his credentials that he was of the Hebrew stock of the tribe of Benjamin. He had been circumcised. He had all the credentials persecuting the church as to zeal and having the righteousness of the law perfectly upheld. But we come to verse 7 in, verse, in Philippians 3, where Paul writes, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now think of the context here in the Philippian epistle. Paul opens the book by saying he's in prison. It was his first Roman imprisonment. He was often chained to a Roman soldier. His quarters were in the praetorium, which was adjacent to the imperial palace, the military headquarters, if you please. But Paul says that even in that, that the gospel has been set forth, that it has been made known in, in all the quarters. And he says to the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. And then he sets forth for us the contrast between his former life and his new life in Jesus Christ. So let's look for a few moments at Paul's former passion. What was it that lightened his soul or drove him or gave him the zeal that he expressed? Well, he, he enumerates all of that for us. It, beginning in verse 5, he said, of course, back in the previous verse, he said, although I might myself have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I'm more. He said, if you want to talk about credentials in Judaism, I'll be glad to lay mine out before you. And so he starts out by saying he was circumcised the eighth day. Now, the eighth day circumcision was set in contrast to the circumcision of the Ishmaelites, who came, of course, from Hagar through Abraham. But he says, I'm not of that group. And not only that, the circumcision was an outward signification that one was a son of the covenant. And by the way, the Abrahamic covenant is that great covenant that sets a framework for our entire Bible. And in that covenant, God promised the land, the seed, and the blessing to Abraham and his descendants of the faith. And so Paul wants everyone to know that I am a child of the covenant with circumcision of the eighth day. And then he says, of the nation of Israel. You and I read that and we think, well, that's what he should say. I'm 
I'm a Jew, I'm an Israelite. But when he used the term Israel, he's talking specifically as a son of Jacob as opposed to a son of Esau. For Israel, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and he was a prince with God. And then he said he was of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul here lets them know he's in one of the most elite of all the tribes of Israel, Benjamin. Benjamin was the only tribe that joined itself to Judah, which around which was Jerusalem. And Judah was the only tribe that was faithful to Judah when the civil war came in the time of Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And so it has a very special place. Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin was the aristocracy. For out of Benjamin came the very first king of Israel. We know one of them, the first king's name was Saul. And many believe that Paul was named for King Saul. And so he rightly identified himself. And then he went on to say that I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Now what did that mean? In Paul's day, there were many Jews that had adopted the Greek culture. And they were called the Hellenistic Jews, that term that we often refer to Greek culture, Hellenism. But Paul said, no, that, that's not me, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He says, no, no, I want you to know my parents had pure Jewish blood going way back. There was no contamination in the bloodline. And it also meant that he retained the speaking of the Hebrew language. And we remember when there was a riot in Jerusalem when Paul had been placed under arrest that he spoke to the Jews in the Hebrew language. And of course, that was the language to which the Lord, in which the Lord spoke to him on the road to Damascus. He said, concerning the law, I'm a Pharisee. Now, a Pharisee, there were never more than 6,000 of them. They came, likely came from the group called the Hasidim. The Hasidim, in the time before Christ, their name came from the word righteous, which is Tzedek, and the Hatzedek became the Hasidim. And so they were the strictest, narrowest sect of Judaism. And so Paul sets forth his pride in being a Pharisee. And then he says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. And Paul related that. He said, I thought myself to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I locked up many of the saints in prison. When they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them in every synagogue, and I tried to force them to blaspheme the name of Jesus. I pursued them even to foreign cities. So Paul's account here shows us the extremity of his hatred and his zeal, being consumed with Judaism. Now, religion often does that to people. You know, the most we, we live in a time when there is a, a war on terror that we call it. And we know what extremism can do in religion. It brought down the Twin Towers in New York City. So an extremism in religion is a, is a very hostile thing. Paul went on to say that not only that, he was as to the righteousness of, which is in the law, he was found blameless. Paul had in his heart a burning zeal for what he thought was the cause of God. And he had a record in Judaism that no man could mark a fault on. And so this system of human works, of keeping the law, he thought that he was justified by those works. But religion that tells you that you can get to heaven by works is nothing but slavery. It puts chains around you. 
and you're trying to weigh everything. Am I keeping the law enough? Am I doing good enough? Have I done 51% good as opposed to 49% bad? So Paul lays that out before us. He says, I was blameless. Now the scripture tells us about the law and the keeping of the law. It says that the law is like a mirror. It can show you your dirty face, but it can never make your face clean. It can never wash you clean. The law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. So what about Paul's new affection? He found the expulsive power of a new affection that changed his whole life, his whole direction, his whole priorities. Everything about his life was to change dramatically. And we look at that verse that should be an aspiration to us, that he said, whatever things were gained to me, I count as loss for the sake of Christ, and I count all things but loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish. Think about that for just a moment. Let's transfer, transpose Paul from the first century to this day, the 21st century. And what would Paul's bio look like? Probably have a PhD from Harvard, a tenured professor in a major university, a, a high income, a published author, a, a speaker on the lecture circuit, often interviewed on national television, a real ideologue and intellectual of the highest rate with all esteem. No doubt with that, there would come much financial remuneration and he would live in a high style if we brought Paul to today. And Paul used the word that that's rubbish. That's nothing. You know, so many times people hold on to things that are perishing. If I read Second Peter correctly, everything in this world is going to be burned up one day. Everything, the things that we, we enjoy, our homes, our vehicles, travel, our belongings, our computers, cell phones, everything, it's all going to be burned up. So we need to consider where do we put our affection? Well, what, what led to this new affection for the Apostle Paul? Well, we know about his dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus. In Acts 8, we have an account where Paul stood at the stoning of the first martyr of the Christian church, Stephen, and they laid Stephen's clothes at the foot of a young man named Saul. Campbell Morgan said he had seen a man bloody from the stones, bruised and battered and beaten, going out of life, and his face lit with a glorious light. And he had heard his declaration that he, Stephen, had seen into the world beyond a living Lord and Master. And so Paul, as it is related to us in Acts, it says, as he was traveling and approaching Damascus, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a loud voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Get up and enter the city, and it'll be told you what you shall do. Later in Acts chapters 22 and 26, he said it was a great light, a light above the brightness of the noonday sun. If there's ever been a passage of Scripture in our New Testament that highlights 
the election of God, it surely is here. Here's a man that's going up to kill Christians. He's going up to put them into prison. He's going up to get them to blaspheme the name of Jesus. He's going to, get, he's going to put them in a place where they're harassed and hounded and dogged and perhaps even stoned to death. And so Paul relates all of this. G. Campbell Morgan said he was fighting a strange turmoil of mind in which his mental questionings, inquiries, wonderings, and amazement were all mingled together. He was so troubled with all of this, and he had a white-hot passion for what he was doing, and in that condition, he was apprehended of Christ Jesus. Dr. Warren Wiersbe said, when Paul met Jesus Christ, on the Damascus Road, he trusted him. He became a child of God, and it was an instantaneous miracle of the grace of God, the kind that still takes place today whenever sinners admit their need and turn to the Savior by faith. I know that you know well, very well that Pastor Davy has continually emphasized in his messages we need to be absolutely certain that we are a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, that we have been converted, we have been born from above, we have been born anew, and that we have this certainty and peace that there's been the transformation in our lives. And so I like Dr. Wearsby's words because he says these kinds of miracles happen today. And you think about the time that you came to know Christ and see who he really was and what a difference it made in your life. And so I leave you with this question on this. Are you absolutely certain that you have been converted to Christ? And then let's look at Paul's revolutionary change of his priorities and his values. He said, whatever things were gained to me, I counted loss. And he said, I count all things. Now, when we read that, we don't really see what's in the language behind it. It's a measured conclusion. It's used in the perfect tense. He said, I've evaluated this over a period of time, and I've come to a sound, reasoned conclusion about all of this. And when he uses the word count, all things but loss. And in the second occurrence, he says, I count them but dung. I count them but dung. What were the all things? anything you can imagine, wealth and fame and glory and the, and the finest of life, whatever. It really doesn't matter, he says, because I count all things, every potential gain in addition to all that he enumerated about his life. Now, I think to understand Paul's framework of reference, it's good to keep in mind what he wrote in chapter 2. Jesus Christ he reveals Christ as one who left heaven. It says he humbled himself and took on the form of a servant and came in the likeness of men. It was the great R.G. Lee that said that one day when God the Father in heaven, he said when he heard that groan that came up from the Garden of Eden, he asked the question, who will go down and silence that groan and heal that hurt and rescue that fallen race? And as he visualized it, he said, the Son of God stood up. And the Son of God took off his crown. And he laid aside his azure mantle. And he laid down his scepter or his ruling rod. He left all the joys of heaven, the singing of the angelic choirs. And to do what? To descend the grand staircase to come down to this earth. 
He left the harmony of heaven for the cacophony of earth. He left all the glories of being worshiped as the king of heaven to come down to this earth to be hated, to be cursed, but to be despised, and ultimately to be crucified at Golgotha. And so when Paul tells us in that great kenosis passage that he emptied himself, the theologians sometimes put it this way, he gave up all of the free and independent exercise of the prerogatives of deity. That Greek verb, kanao, he emptied himself. And Christ did that, and what was the sequel? Don't ever stop until you get the sequel. And the sequel was, wherefore God has also given him a name that is above every name. He has highly exalted him, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. Did you know that every person that has ever breathed the breath of life will confess that Jesus is Lord? But there are two classes of people that will do that. It is those, and I hope every one of you are one of them, that have confessed him as a needy sinner and claimed him as Savior and Lord of your life. You know, in Romans, Paul in chapter 10, he said, believe in your heart, believe and receive Christ as Lord, that he is Lord. There will be multiplied millions, yea, billions that will confess Jesus as Lord it will have no redeeming value. But the fact that God has put him in the position of one who is highly exalted above every name, he will be confessed. Jesus is Lord. Why not own him now? Because now to receive him and trust him and believe in him as Savior and Lord redeems us from an eternal hell and destruction. And so Paul looks at the paradigm of Christ who gave up everything, came to earth, became a slave, and Jesus claimed to be a servant and a slave and told us to be servants. He gave all of that up. I think it's important to say this. There is no such thing as a true Christian believer who does not have a change in his life. There is no such thing. Paul made it clear in 2 Corinthians 5 that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. And so not only did you accept Christ, now we know, by the way, I'm from the South. I'm from Virginia originally. And in the Southland, across the Bible Belt, it's very easy for someone to say, I went forward in a meeting. I prayed a prayer. I cried. I shed a tear, I signed a card. And you ask them, are you a Christian? And they say, well, yes, I went forward in that church years ago without ever talking about what Jesus Christ means to them and how real he is in their life right now. You see, we can be deceived. I know I was that person. I was raised in a pastor's home, nine years old. I remember going, you remember the old days they had the altar call and you go forward I'm down on my knees, and then I feel a warm hand on my head, and it was that of my father, and he's praying for me, and I'm praying, Lord, I want to be saved. I suppose I felt guilty, but you know, I went on from that experience at nine years of age and went on through school and high school, loved sports like most guys do and all of those things, and like every young athlete, I knew that I would be pitching in the major leagues one day. 
I just knew that. I mean, I, could, I would call myself by the name of these famous players back in the days when you could keep up with who was on what team. And there weren't that many of them. But that was my aspiration. And then my brother and I said, just in case you fail, we'll be a sports announcer. You know, didn't have ESPN back then, but I'm sure today there are kids all over thinking, one day I'll be on ESPN calling the games when the Wake Forest Demon Deacons upset the Blue, Duke Blue Devils. Excuse me for lifting up my alma mater. But you know something? I went on and I went through college. And I want to tell you, my Bible was nothing but a dust collector. So I moved to Atlanta with the Exxon Corporation. Well, a young man, two nice little children, go there, go to a church. I didn't have any discernment. I thought it was okay. Uh, the man talked about Jesus a bit, but he made a fatal mistake. He asked me to teach a Sunday school class of young people. So I go up to teach the young people. Well, isn't that just wonderful? Here's a young guy. He's out of college. He's got a nice wife. I have a beautiful wife, two little boys. He's going to teach Sunday school, but there was a problem. And the problem was every word I spoke, the word hypocrite came back to my heart. So I did something very friendly and nice. I called the pastor on that Sunday afternoon, and I said, I want you to know I'm never coming back to your church. That's a real shocker, isn't it? He said, what's the matter? I said, well, you put a hypocrite up to teach the teenagers today, and I don't want a hypocrite to teach my children, so I know I'm in the wrong place. Never asked me a question about what I was doing in my life, not a word. I was an unregenerate, respectable church member. And that night, I went to another church, and I heard someone preaching the truth. I came under such conviction I could hardly sit through a service until I yielded myself to Jesus Christ and was truly converted. You know, when that happened, I wanted to read the Bible. It was no longer a dust collector. I had a new life, and I wanted to pray for the first time in my life. And I want to ask you, have you had that experience of the new birth? Paul had a complete change in his value system. Paul might have put it this way. I gave up and I gave up all of the fame and glory and the high ranks of Judaism for an itinerant ministry with no sure income, with constant trials, severe persecution, personal rejection, beatings, imprisonment, and even death. J. Vernon McGee, when he commented about it, he said, Paul said the things that he used to consider the most precious, he now considers to be but dung. B.H. Carroll, the founder of Southwestern Seminary, says, when I was converted, I lost my religion. And I'll tell you something that's very important to lose your religion. Religion is nothing but chains. The grace of God sets you free. Did you know that the whole history of the Jews shows that if one left Judaism, their family considered them to be traitors, their pride was outraged, they considered that one who left, went to Christianity or some other religion, nothing but an apostate, an enemy of God, and to his chosen race, and their own family became their bitter enemies. And so that's what Paul went through. He changed it. Are you willing to give up all of your friends if necessary? 
Even the love and respect of your family, if it means that's what it takes for you to accept Christ and live for him. Somebody's so afraid, I'm going to be identified with a Baptist church, or I'm going to be identified with a certain group. Put that out of your mind, my friend, because the issue of eternity is on the table. The issue of eternity. So, as Dr. Wiersbe observed, Paul's career as a Jewish leader was certainly a promising one, and yet Paul gave it all up to become a hated member of the Christian sect. And here's an application that I would give to you. You may be proud of your religious background, rituals, and observances, your childhood memories, your allegiance to your religion, your, your emotional attachment, your lifelong friends. And if you take Christ, you, like Paul, will have to be willing, if necessary, to give all of them up, every one of them. And then Paul showed a burning desire to impact others. He said, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. He already had Christ. How would he gain Christ? He wanted Christ's blessing on his life that he could make an impact in the life of other people. Paul is the one who wrote, I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. He even went so far as to say, I could wish myself accursed from my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He says, for Christ, my Lord, I would be willing to be accursed, to spend eternity without Christ if I could win my brethren. And so Paul's desire was to impact other lives. And that's what he's talking about when he said that I may be found in him. That is, when other people see our lives... Do they say, that person is different? Last Friday, a lady came to the seminary office, and she brought a young lady from her work. And the young lady was interested in taking some seminary classes. And you know what she said? She named the friend that brought her. This lady is the chief financial officer for her company. And on her voluntary time, she has Bible studies in five of their installations every week. And she's impact. And this young lady said, I want to be like her. She is such a wonderful Christian. I want to be like her. And that should be the aspiration of our lives. So Paul then knew that his spiritual life was only by God's enabling. He said, not having a righteousness of my own that's derived from the law. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that come from God on the basis of faith. And then Paul had a consuming passion to have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Yes, he'd accepted Christ as Savior, but he wanted this intimate relationship. And I would encourage you to let this be the aspiration of each of our hearts as we see it in verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I might attain the resurrection from the dead. It's a personal relationship. The Greek verb there is gnosko. It's a word that's used for the intimate relation between a man and, his, and a woman, the marital relationship. And he's talking about a personal relationship where I know who Christ is to spend time with him. Let's put it on this level. 
If you don't have devotions every morning as a believer, your life becomes a vacuum. Nothing goes right. God calls us to himself. And we've got to have a warm devotional life. I remember in seminary days, oftentimes a chapel speaker would come and he would warn us, don't let your classroom studies take the place of your devotional life. That was great advice. And so all these years, all these years long, I'm called just like you are every day of my life to spend time in this book and to spend time in prayer and fellowship with God. That's what Paul's talking about, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Dr. Wearsby said, yes, it was a personal experience as Paul walked with Christ, prayed, obeyed his will, sought to glorify his name. When he was living under the law, all Paul had was a set of rules. And now he had a friend, a master, a Lord who loved him and a companion to him in his life. And then he said the words, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. Well, Paul knew something about that. He had that post-ascension appearance of Christ on the Damascus Road. And in 2 Corinthians, he said, I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago who was caught up to the third heaven, to the paradise of God. And he said, I heard words it's not lawful for a man to speak. He knew about the power of the resurrection. And you too know about the power of the resurrection when you go down to the cemetery to say goodbye to the dearest of earth. Many of you have lost a mate or a child or a brother or sister. And a great number of you have lost your parents. They're gone on. They've gone on to be with God. But though we may weep at the passing of our loved ones, it's the power of the resurrection that gives us a comfort. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. And because he lives, though we give up the dearest of earth, we too know something about the power of the resurrection. Paul said of that power, he wrote to the Ephesian church, that God, working his mighty power when he raised up Christ from the dead. In Michigan, we had three doctors in our church, and one day I just couldn't buy my little devilish nature. I just had to say something to them. And I looked at them, I got them together, and I said, I want to tell you, my dear brothers, that all of your patients die, but all of mine live forever. And they do. And I want to tell you that I went in the tomb in Jerusalem, and I've got news for you. There was no one in there. Christ is risen. It is the empty tomb. And the sermon of God goes forth every day because the tomb is empty and Christ is preached and we do rejoice. The power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul's aspiration. I want to know about the fellowship of his sufferings. It doesn't that we should have this self-flagellation or a masochistic attitude. Well, what he's talking about is that when the sure trials that come to you as a believer in Christ you want to be able to respond as Jesus did when he was betrayed and beaten and crucified. You know, the apostle Peter says that Christ left us an example that you should follow his steps. And when he was threatened, he did not threaten, but he committed to him, himself to him who judges righteously. 
You know, if you're not willing to take injustice, you're not a very good example of our Lord. We're not to be treated fairly. The world will not treat us fairly. But we have the example of Jesus Christ. Have you ever sung the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross Without It Touching You Deeply? When I Survey the Wondrous Cross On Which the Prince of Glory Died My Richest Gain I Count But Loss And Poor Contempt On All My Pride Oh yes, if you, are, if you follow Christ, if you're totally committed to Him, you will have persecution. But aren't you glad for those comforting words that Paul wrote in the Roman epistle that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in him? That hymn says, see from his head, his hands, his side, love with the blood flow mingled down, did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown. And now we get to the capstone. I want you to look, if you will, at that final phrase in verse 11. Why did Paul do all this? That I may attain unto the resurrection from the dead. Did you know this is the only time that word resurrection occurs in the New Testament, the Greek New Testament? It is not the typical word for resurrection, anastasia. It has a preposition in front of it. It is ex-anastasia. It is the out-resurrection. And I want to say, and I'll take a little liberty to say this, Paul's anticipation of the rapture of the church. You know, the Dallas Seminary put out a, fac- a faculty, put out a commentary called the Bible Knowledge Commentary. Let me give you what they say about it. They said perhaps he was using this word, this ex-anastasia, to refer to the rapture. And how many of us are not blessed when we say the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We're not looking for the undertaker. We're looking for the upper taker. Paul knew about the rapture. With the lightning pace of a changing world, it seems to students of Bible prophecy that we may be having the stage set for the rapture of the church. And we're giving an exhortation in 1 John. It said, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone that has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. So Paul's testimony calls us to make sure that we know Christ and we've been converted to Christ, that we do have a changed life and we do not have a right to stubbornly hold on to our traditions, even if it means upsetting our family, leaving a religious affiliation, maybe a circle of friends, that tie may have to be cut. But Paul's exhortation to us is to join with him in that great aspiration that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and being conformed even unto his death. 
May we pray a moment. Father, we are so thankful and grateful today for the wondrous love of Jesus Christ, the Savior who left all of heaven's glory and came down that grand staircase to be our Redeemer. I pray, dear God, that there wouldn't be anyone here today that wouldn't search their own heart. Have I accepted Christ? Have I yielded to Him as the Lord of my life and King of my life? Do I love Him? And that I show to the world a righteousness that is the outworking of true faith in Jesus Christ. Father, bless our hearts. Use your word to speak to me and to everyone who is here in this place this day. In the name of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Amen. Amen.